0: All right, thanks Steve. Good morning. morning. Doesn't this feel good? Does it feel right again? Being back together, the whole church. I I joked with the 11 o'clock service last week and I said, you're gonna get to meet these people who wake up early on Sunday morning. This is your Sunday for you. They still may walk in the back. And uh, I forgot to charge my iPad. So for those of you who are keeping track, that's 10 points off for your pastor. Okay, uh, go ahead and grab a Bible if you got it. If you're new, my name is Steve. Welcome to Citadel Square. We are in the middle of our study of the book of Revelation, the very last book of your Bible. And we're going to look at something real special here today. We're going to look at the Antichrist. So if you woke up this morning thinking, I wonder who the Antichrist is, you're not going to find out today. So sorry about that. Uh, Throughout the scriptures, God's people have a strange uh, and antagonistic relationship with world powers, political leaders. Uh, When you get to your New Testament, uh, you have conversations that Paul, as Paul writes to the Romans, he says, be subject to the governing authorities. And he says that no authority that is in place uh, got there on their own, but they're put in place by God. When Paul writes to Timothy... He urges that prayers and intercessions and supplications be made uh, on behalf of all those who are in high authority. I I forgot to do something. Sorry. See, you don't charge your iPad and your technology gets out of want. You're frazzled. One, happy Father's Day. Let's start there. (laughs) I'm going to sit down and get back up. Uh, Father's Day, yes. Go grill something, set something on fire, cook it. Give it to your dad. It'll be a great Sunday, I promise. Uh, Father's Day. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians, uh, I I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Now, if you're a dad, uh, that's what you want as a dad. As a dad, you want to do everything you can to get out of the way so that your kids see their heavenly father, right? Amen. See, the old man teaches the young. And you want to get out of the way. So if you feel like this morning, Steve, I'm not the dad that I ought to be. Steve, I'm not the dad that I want to be. Be encouraged. Your job is to get out of the way and that your kids would see their heavenly father, right? Thank you. Okay, men, amen? amen? Okay, thank you. That's the goal of being a dad is to do all you can to serve and train and equip and hold the line of truth in your family and in your home that your kids might come to a knowledge of their Heavenly Father. So today, these are always complex holidays because this may be a year where you want to be a dad and you're not. This may be a year where you lost your dad. Uh, So these holidays, as they come into the church, we celebrate those of us who are called to be fathers. We remember uh, those men who have given of themselves to uh, love us and to serve us. And we remember ultimately that every man and every fatherhood that he is called to is ultimately a poor reflection, a shadow of our good and gracious heavenly father. So uh, number two is, Uh, Of all the things that we could be talking about, this week is also the um, commemoration of the time where our friends next door lost fathers. Uh, where the Emmanuel AME Church uh, experienced that horror next door. So what I want to do is, uh, in the midst of all of this, of remembering fathers and remembering our brothers and sisters in Christ next door, I'm going to ask God to shepherd us in this room, that our hearts might be drawn to the true goodness, wisdom, and grace of our Heavenly Father, and that God might shepherd the hearts of our brothers and sisters next door as they remember loss of fathers because of that time, all right? I'm going to do that through prayer, so we're going to pray just for a minute, and then we'll come back to Revelation 13, all right? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we remember that we have a heavenly father who is over all things. When John writes his epistle, he says, I write to you young children because you know the father. So for those of us who are in this room who have come to the saving knowledge of our heavenly father, we give thanks. We remember that it's to you, our Heavenly Father, that we pray. And that we come alone by the divine Son of God, whose death on the cross allows us to pray, who establishes a relationship that where we can call you Father and we are adopted as sons of God and daughters of God. We pray for our brothers and sisters next door at Emmanuel A.M.E. as we have a relationship with the leaders there and Eric Manning in that church. And we pray that today and this week as uh, many there are meditating on the loss of a father, the loss of mothers, the loss of friends, that you would be the shepherding Christ to them. That you'd encourage them, that you'd remind them of your great love, that uh, you would comfort the downcast and the brokenhearted, and they would bring their burdens to you and know the comfort that alone comes through Christ. So, Father, may we as a church uh, remember our brothers and sisters there in prayer. Would we remember our fathers in this place here this morning, and would we give thanks for what you have done to establish a relationship with us through Jesus? So, Father, bless the dads in this room. May they be men of courage and of faith, that they would be men who uh, lead in their homes, that they would be men who protect uh, the family, and that they would pass on the truth to the next generation. I pray that that would be true of of the men and the fathers who are in this room. We bless you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now we can start sermon. Turn to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, and uh, we'll give you a little bit of a running start, but uh, let me start again and say that uh, the Christian's relationship with world powers, political leaders, is an odd one. Paul says this in Romans, that we're to submit to the governing authority because no authority that is in place is there except for the wisdom and authority of God, that their authority is a derivative authority. Paul tells Timothy to pray for those kings and in high position that we might live godly lives in every way, dignified. But what do you do when the government goes crazy? What do you do when kings go crazy? And you may say to yourself, Steve, aren't we there? And I'm going to say to you, not yet. Because there's coming a time when there are no more coexist stickers, when there is no more religious pluralism, where there is no more freedom of speech, no more freedom of religion, no more freedom to spend your money the way you want to, our culture, our world is headed toward one world power. Under the control and the authority of a singular leader who has power, authority, strength, and demands that everyone worship him. And that text is Revelation chapter 13. If you remember, in Revelation 11, we looked at two witnesses. Remember who they looked like? They looked like Moses, and they looked like Elijah. Now, Moses and Elijah, during their ministry, had some uh, conflict with world powers. Would you agree? conflict with leaders and kings and those who are in high authority. Moses went toe-to-toe with who? He went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. That he stood alone as he told Pharaoh, let my people go that they may come and worship me. Elijah in his day stood against Ahab and against Jezebel and said, you are in sin. You are leading God's people away from him. So much so that Elijah ends his ministry discouraged and despairing and has to have a one-on-one counseling session with God on a mountain. It got that dark for Elijah. When you move into your New Testament, John the Baptist calls out Herod for having his brother's wife. Paul, at the end of his life, stands before kings in chains, saying, I am on trial today because of the resurrection of the dead, and I would demand that you, king, come to the knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. So, as we look at a culture that in many ways has gone crazy, we're gonna see the end of the story in Revelation 13. We're gonna see where all of this progress in a culture is headed. So look with me at Revelation 13. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, And I want you to go back just to the previous paragraph to give you a bit of a running start as to where we were. We didn't get to this last week. But uh, Satan is purged from heaven. Satan comes down to earth with great fury and he persecutes the woman from our vision from last week. Look at verse uh, 13 here together with me. The dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she's to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. That as Satan falls to earth, he gets ready to persecute the nation of Israel, whom God protects in the wilderness. God frustrates the plans of Satan. And now, toward the end of this paragraph, Satan is going to call someone to do his bidding. That commentators believe that in every generation, Satan has someone primed and ready to fulfill his purposes. And that individual isn't somebody who uh, is of great renown. It's not somebody who uh, has a super ability in any sort of way. He's somebody who's particularly pliable to Satan's authority. That when Satan inhabits, when demons inhabit mankind, it is a horror that happens. When you think about the garrison demoniac, it's a horror. When you think about Judas going out to betray the Christ, when Satan uh, indwells Judas, it's a horror what's about to happen. And in Revelation 13, you're gonna have it again where Satan falls to earth, look at the remainder here at verse 17. The dragon becomes furious with the woman, went went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, and on those who keep the commandments of God, and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sands of the sea. How is Satan going to make war on those who hold to the testimony of Jesus? That's Revelation 13, all right? Let's pray and jump in. Father in heaven, for Revelation 13, We ask for your grace that you give me wisdom, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. Oh God, my rock and my redeemer. Would you build up your church through your word? Would your people find encouragement where they are discouraged? And would we live on purpose and design for what you would have us do in this generation and this city? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as he stands on the sea, the sea in Israel is to your uh, west, And here Satan falls to heaven, he stands on the shore, and he's looking toward the west. And now you're going to see a beast rise out of the water. Look at verse 1. And I saw a beast rise out of the sea. When we looked at the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, it said the beast who rises from the abyss will make war on the two witnesses and conquer them. So as this beast rises from the sea, he probably rises from the abyss, that place where demons are bound and restricted in their movements until this point when Satan is going to call him forth. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise to you. We've already seen this in chapter 12, haven't we? We've seen this characteristic in this sign of the dragon in heaven, with multiple heads, multiple horns, multiple crowns upon his head. So as he calls this beast who is going to be both a world power and an individual, as he calls this beast to do his bidding, this beast is going to share the characteristics of Satan himself. Now that's pretty encouraging, right? To know that this world power is now gonna be under the complete control and authority, and it's going to look like world powers from the past. When When I say to you, Hitler, you think of what? you think of the world power of Germany. When I think, uh, when we talk about Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un, we think of both a world leader and a world power at the same time. When we think of Joseph Stalin, we think of world uh, power and world leader. That this world leader is going to have associated with him a power and authority that's from Satan himself. Take a look at verse two. The beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, you have a cross-reference in your Bible that may look at Daniel 7. Do you have that? Keep your finger there in Revelation 13. Turn back to Daniel 7. We've looked at this before, but I want to show it to you. Daniel 7 is uh, is a picture of successive world powers, that's the vision that Daniel gets, and Daniel is uh, in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, which is in the kingdom of Babylon, and he has that first vision. You remember the vision of the statue with the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the toes the mixed with clay and iron, remember that? Maybe not, that's in Daniel chapter two. Daniel chapter seven, he sees successive world powers that will come, and they're all related to these animals. Look at Daniel seven, verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Satan himself is calling something from the great sea. Verse 3, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. That's Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom of Babylon. Verse 5. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong it had great iron teeth it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns i considered the horns and behold there came up among them another horn a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots and behold in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things now come back to revelation 13. Why does John have a vision of three different beasts that characterize this final world power? What John receives in a vision is something as if to say that every world power that seeks to have complete and utter domination over the entire planet is inspired at its heart by Satan himself. That Satan is behind these world powers of Babylon. Babylon had a massive... Uh, authority during its time. Assyria had a massive authority during its time. It wasn't nation states like we have today, that there are countries with leaders over them that are spread throughout the world. At this time, the authority and the autocracy and the um, dominance of these world powers is global in its effect. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greek... Uh, The Greek kingdom, Rome. They sought complete world dominance. And here's Satan standing on the shore calling this beast forward that has characteristics of all of these previous kingdoms. That it has the authority and the power and the control and you're going to see Satan hand it three things that are representative of these three kingdoms. Look at verse 2. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were a bear. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. So it looks a lot like... Babylon, Persia, and Greek, uh, Rome. And to the dragon, and to it, the dragon gave, watch these three things he gives. He gives power. That this kingdom, as it rises, is going to have complete world power. It's going to exercise its power and authority, not in a singular location, but it's going to be a global power. From chapter six forward, power has always been associated with God. God has always been praised as the one who has complete authority, power, control, and dominion. That's the exaltation of God in Revelation chapter six and going forward. But here at this point, the power changes. That Satan himself is going to leverage every ounce of his strength and power to accomplish his will with this kingdom. Number two, he's given his throne. You remember back in the, uh, the church uh, where John, uh, I believe it's Smyrna, I can't remember right now, you can look it up later, where he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And one of the things we said about that time and place for the church at Smyrna was that it was in the very place where emperor worship was the most uh, vos, vos, uh, vos vocal, that they lived in a time when everybody viewed the Roman emperor as a god consistently throughout these world powers, these world leaders who rise and seek total dominance and control, view themselves and are viewed as gods. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He sets up. He has this great vision that Daniel gives him, where Daniel interprets the vision, then he goes, man, your, your God is great. He gives all these mysteries. And then, then Nebuchadnezzar sets up a, a statue to himself, saying everybody's gotta fall down and worship this statue because I'm so awesome and he demands their worship, and if you don't worship, you go into the fiery furnace, right? Then you have Darius who shows up and says, everybody's gotta pray to me, because I'm this world leader, and Daniel and his friends say, no, we're not gonna pray to you. Well, if you don't pray to me, you're gonna go in the lion's den, and God's gotta protect Daniel. So these world leaders, they, they go crazy, and they believe themselves to be God. Remember Herod? Herod gives a speech in the New Testament, and everybody says, the voice of a God, not man. And he dies on the spot and gets eaten by worms. Always a hint that God does not agree with the things that you are saying. But these world leaders always seek power. Not only that, they seek a throne. They seek a position of exaltation. And number three, the dragon gives to it, see, authority. Now, you can have an exalted position and have no authority, right? You can be a figurehead and go, we really know that you're just, uh, you just look good on TV, but you don't have any real true authority and power behind the scenes. You can have a lot of power, but no position, right? And those people pretty quickly get picked up by the police that try to exert their power and their authority in ways where everybody goes, well, you just don't have the position, you don't have the authority, but this individual, this kingdom is going to have all three. Imagine a world power that has All authority that sets himself up in the temple and declares himself to be God and demands that everybody worships him by penalty of death. And Satan himself is behind it. Now, how does this happen? How does Satan do this? That he brings all of the world to his feet? He doesn't just do it with brute force. He doesn't just do it with regal authority. He's gonna do it in a very particular way, and he's going to do it in a way that mimics the kingdom of God. He's going to do it in a way that mimics Christ himself, that you'll see these themes all the way through this chapter, that he's an imposter, but he's playing off of all of the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. One of its heads of this beast seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. See, this world leader doesn't just need power. He needs the press. He needs proof of why you should listen to him of why you should follow him, of why you should be amazed at who he is and what he does. Next week, we're going to look at uh, the beast's hype man, a guy called the false prophet. The false prophet is going to lead everyone to follow the beast. Just turn forward with me, or just go, if you're probably on the same page there, look at verse, um, look at verse 13 in the same chapter. In talking about this second beast, the false prophet, here's what it says in verse 13. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of people. Who's that sound like? Well, Elijah did that. Verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. That this beast is going to experience some kind of devastating wound from which the beast will recover. Now, it's interesting, commentators note that you see how verse 3 begins, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. It's the same um, phrase that's used of the lamb standing as if slain. All the way back in Revelation chapter 5. That we're looking now at a pseudo-resurrection. We're looking at a miracle so amazing that it's going to cause, look at what the remainder of the verse says, the whole earth to marvel as they follow the beast. You remember when Jesus calms the wind and the waves? You know what it says of the disciples? It says of the disciples that they marveled asking, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? That when Jesus curses the fig tree, it says of the disciples that they marvel, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? See, for this individual to rise to power, he just doesn't need power. He needs proof. He needs something so captivating, so amazing that it will cause everyone to follow him. Now look at verse four. They're not just amazed. They don't just marvel. Something happens in verse four. They what? They worship. See, there's a difference between being impressed and being a worshiper, isn't there? That you can be impressed with individuals and their realm of excellence and the realm of schooling or the realm of accomplishment that they have, but it, it takes something else for it to move into worship, doesn't it? It takes something else for you to give your heart to that thing that's not just powerful, but is so worth devoting your attention and affection and your followership and your discipleship that you're entrusting your very hopes into this person. They worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Isn't that interesting? It's, it, that phrase is, kind of, is used sometimes of God himself. In Exodus 15, it says, God, who are you? Uh, who is able to do what you do, God? It's in the song of Moses. And on the other side of the Red Sea, crushing the Egyptian army, Moses writes this song. He says, God, you are majestic among all gods. There's nobody like you. That there are worship songs that say, God, there is none like you. No one else can do the things that you do. And note that why do the people on earth worship it? Did you see the the reason? Yes, the beast is given authority, and yes, now they worship the beast, but they're impressed by one particular thing. Do you see it? What are they impressed by? They're impressed with his strength. They're not impressed with his goodness, right? They're not impressed that this individual who seems like he had a mortal wound and yet was healed and yet was resurrected, we're not impressed with the quality of his life we're impressed with the power that he brings to bear. We're impressed with his ability. Remember when the nation of Israel wanted a king like all the nations? Who did they pick? They picked Saul. They picked somebody who was strong, tall, handsome, wealthy, accomplished. We're not a big fan of Samuel, the old guy, and we really don't want the young guy, Dave. We like this guy because he looks good. He looks impressive. Now what is happening during this time when Satan falls from heaven to earth and now indwells this individual that will accomplish his purposes? Remember how the seal judgments have happened? Remember, you're going to have economic distress. You're going to have moral distress. You're going to have uh, economic distress. That now there's going to be murders and uh, 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 upheaval in our society that's so amazing and so uncertain that all of the world is going to be looking for some other leader other than the Christ. And they're going to want someone impressive. They're going to want someone in control. They're going to want someone powerful. Powerful. Someone who can unite us against all of this crazy craziness that's coming as the seals and the trumpet judgments fall. We want a leader. Mankind is always impressed with power. Why do you think the superhero movies do so good? because it has nothing to do with morality. It has to do with power. It has to do with overcoming the weakness that we are so familiar with, amen? That if we're honest, we feel in the center of who we are ineffective and weak, don't we? We feel uncertain, like we don't have it together and the greatest temptation, you have something right now that if you could Just exercise a little bit extra power to accomplish the thing that you want to do, you would do it, wouldn't you? That there are things in your life that if you just had that power to change it, you would do it. When Satan confronts Jesus and Jesus is standing on the mountain and Satan shows him the kingdoms of this world and their authority, he says, All this can be yours if you would fall down and worship me. Power is easy. I can give that to you. But what I want is your worship. I want your heart. I want your deference. I want you to build your life around me. And I can, do you hear the temptation? Do you feel that in your life right now, that if you could have that power to make the changes that you could make, you would skip over all of the character formation, you'd skip over all of the work of faith that God is doing in your heart, you'd skip over all of that perseverance that he's trying to work in you right now, and you'd just get to the end and have the power to fix it, wouldn't you? And everybody stands in awe of this leader saying, who can fight against this one? Who can fight against this guy? Nobody can go toe-to-toe with him. see we hate weakness because we worship power because we long to be sufficient don't we we long to be in control now he doesn't just have power he doesn't just have the proof of some miraculous false resurrection he's also going to have a preaching ministry Look at verse five. You saw the blasphemous names on his heads. You're going to see blaspheme mentioned four times in this passage. That gives you a hint as to whether or not this is a good kingdom or a bad kingdom, right? That's a joke. It's okay. You'll get it in a couple minutes. Verse five. The beast was given a mouth. Given a mouth. He's given a preaching ministry. Uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. You see that? This is, I think, the fourth or fifth mention of the amount of time that this beast is given authority. That he's restricted. He has authority, but just for a season. He has authority and power, but just for a time. And it's given by God into the hands of this beast and this world leader. That God always uses Satan, knowing all of who he is and all of his plans and all of his desires, and he always has them on a leash. He always says, this far, no further. Go and do everything you want to do, but you can't cross this line, this boundary, this hedge, this restriction is upon you. And in this time, Satan is going to be given world authority, world power, world dominance, and a fantastic preaching ability in this beast and in this leader. Verse 6, it opened its mouth to other blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. See, this world power is not fundamentally for the sake of man and for power, arbitrarily speaking. It's not just power for power's sake, it's a kingdom set up against God. It demands worship. And it blasphemes God. Two things. See, do you see the two things that it blasphemes? One, it blasphemes God and his name. It opened its mouth to other blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name. You know what the name of God is? The name of God has to do with his biblical self-revelation. That this individual will rise to power and say, why do you read your Bible? Why do you want to know who the God of heaven and earth is? It doesn't matter I am here. It doesn't matter what you think and what you worship and where your faith is. That God is not worth worshiping and not worth following. Does that sound familiar? Sound like Genesis 3? God knows in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God knows that you'll be like him, knowing both good and evil. You will not surely die. It's to take the truth of God and to deny it. Not only that, he denies the blaspheming of his name, but he also blasphemes his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Why in the world would Satan blaspheme? This is one of the promises of the Bible, that I will be your God and you will be with my people, you will be uh, my people and I will be with you and walk among you. It's how your Bible ends It's the great promise of God being with you. Behold, I am with you always when? To the end of the age. I'm not going anywhere. It doesn't matter what circumstances look like. It doesn't matter if you can't understand me. I promise I am with you. That Hebrews says, he himself has said, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And Satan says, it's a lie. He has abandoned you in this time. He's nowhere to be found. Show me somebody more impressive, more in control, more strong than me. God is a joke. And this now characterizes this world power of blasphemy. This world power that has authority and dominion and a throne and refuses to accept that there are those who would worship God, the creator of heaven and earth that he goes out to make war. Look at verse seven. It was also, also, it was allowed. Do you see the permission that is given? Consistently, permission given, permission given, permission given. It was allowed to make war in the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Now that should cause you to go, wait a minute. I thought there was somebody who ransomed people from every tribe, people, language, and nation. Does that sound familiar? The one who's standing as of slain ransoms people from every place on the planet. The one who's standing as of slain with a mortal wound that is healed now makes war on people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That there's this constant contrast between the lamb and the beast. Now, it's interesting that this beast is allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them, isn't it? Now, this is, the Bible is put together in a very particular way because in Revelation chapter 12, we saw that the tribulation saints overcome him. They conquer him. By how? The blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved their lives not unto death. That at the same time, it looks like Satan's in control. He's got total world domination, control power, economics, military authority, might, who is demanding that everybody worship him. At the same time as he's making war on the saints, the saints themselves are winning. The saints themselves cannot be conquered because they hold to the blood of the Lamb. That they hold to the word of their testimony. And as Satan decides to make war and to take their lives, they arrive in heaven victorious. You know what I have a problem with? You were asking. I know you were thinking. I wonder what Steve has a problem with. I have a, a problem personally with defining success here. Do You ever do that? You ever feel like your life is not going the way you want your life to go? and you have ambitions for your life that you are looking forward to accomplishing and bringing about, and you have plans for greater victory, greater career advancement, greater health in the future, greater lose that 10 pounds, do a pull-up, whatever your ambitions are, I always hope that my life will get better. I always aspire and I have to be careful that I don't define victory, success, fruitfulness by my time on earth. That I have to think about actively that my victory and my hope and my future are seated with Christ and the heavenlies. Don't you have to do that? Don't you have to remind yourself about every 20 minutes about that? You got to remember, oh yeah, that's right. My life isn't here. My life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ appears, who is your life? And I will appear with him in glory. Hallelujah, amen. I need that, right? I need that reminder about my life because my life has these ebbs and flows based on circumstances, right? Tuesday, good day. Wednesday, bad day. Where's God? Don't know where He is. Oh, it's a good day on Thursday. And it's helpful that Revelation chapter 12 precedes Revelation 13, right? That we remember, that we conquer. By the blood of the Lamb, that my victory is already secure, that my identity is already safe, that he has won the ultimate true battle for me. So that even when the forces of Satan go to hunt and seek out the people who put their hope in Jesus Christ, their victory is already secure. Their victory is already certain. Verse 8. Ah, uh, verse 8, where was I? Verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth, there it is again. Will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So I, bad day Monday, good day Tuesday, bad day Wednesday, good day Thursday. Friday's here. Oh, praise the Lord! It's here. I get to get the Monday. And the hope in this passage is remembering that the my name. That the tribulation saints' names are written in the book of life. That it doesn't matter if the economics dry up and the world powers are against me, that I have been known by name before the foundations of the world. You believe that? Does your election work like that to give you comfort? That God's... God's individual, personal choice, love, and certainty of you gives you strength when things are difficult. How much more in a time when politics and world religion are marshaled against the believer in Jesus Christ? How much more does our reminder of his personal, individual love of us matter today? Isn't that good news? Isn't that a great... like? That's the gem in the middle of this chapter. Jesus loves me. That he has given power and authority into Satan to do his worst, but Jesus loves me. That he knows my name. Now, look at verse nine with me. Everything looks pretty bad at this point. Would you agree? I mean, it looks bad. Oftentimes in the New Testament, when Jesus tells a a parable, right? He gives a parable and he lays it out in front of his disciples or around the people. And then he asks verse nine. Does verse nine look familiar to you? If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Because why does he say that? Because you can't use your eyes in this time. You're going to have to hear the voice of God. You're going to have to hear the truth of his word. You're going to have to have something else other than your eyes to discern what is happening because everything is going to look like it's in control of Satan. Everybody is going to be literally worshiping the devil. Everybody is going to be believing he's in control. Everybody is asking who can fight against this world leader. And John says, if anyone has an an ear, let him hear. This is a fascinating verse. Don't miss this. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. Why in the world would you go to captivity during this time? Why in the world might you die for your faith in this time? Because you are a dissenter. You are standing up like Moses and Elijah and John the Baptist and Paul the Apostle and the apostles who say, uh, you decide whether it's right to follow God or follow man, but we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. That in an evil day, there will be men and women who say, you are not worth following. You are not worth worth worshiping we will not bow the knee see <clears throat> let me just preach just for a second it bothers me when the church forgets its role in a culture it bo- it it gets me bothered it matters too much that we have been called to be ambassadors for Christ It matters too much. And when the church decides to lose and trade its prophetic voice for comfort and protection under political powers, they have lost their purpose for existing. They've lost it. We have been given the only message that allows people to move out from under the wrath of God into adoption and sons and daughters of God. And if we as a church can't call sin what it is, we're in trouble. If we as a church can't stand in a culture and in our family saying God is testifying and making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God, then we have forgotten our purpose. We don't exist to win here. We exist to be prophets and priests for the purposes of God, for as long as he has us here. And these people say, we will go to prison and we will go to death, but we're not moving on Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now, how's this chapter close? Here's a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. You need that? You need endurance and faith for your day? You need endurance and faith. How about when the whole world is in the power of the evil one? How about then? You need endurance and faith for your day then? That you need to remember that you are here for a time and a season, and that Jesus loves you, your election is secure, your robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and that you conquered the spiritual forces that are in the heavenly places by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and love not your life unto death. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. This is how John preaches, isn't it? John ends this vision by kind of inserting himself and go, hey, you know what you gotta do on an evil day like that, right? You gotta go to the end. That this is the promise that he's given to the, the letters to the churches. The devil's about to throw you in prison for 10 days, but you be faithful to the end. And you go to the end, I will give you the crown of life. I want to close. If I'm just going to call the worship team up here. We're going to close our time. And I want to close with a passage of scripture that's very familiar to you. It's a passage from Romans chapter 8. And I want you just, you've probably read Romans chapter 8 20 times. Maybe you've never read Romans 8. Man, I'm so glad you came today for me to read you Romans 8. Because it is one of the most precious sections in the whole Bible. But I want you to read Romans 8 and hear it in light of what is going to be happening in Revelation 13. And I want you to hear the Apostle Paul's defiant and confidence in the love of Christ for him. I want you to read it with with this picture in mind of the economics of this world being in control of Satan and the authorities of this planet being in control of Satan and false miracles being in control of Satan and the beast rising to power and having power and authority and a throne and everybody following after the beast. And Romans chapter 8 says this, what then shall we say to these things? What are you going to say in that day? Look at what he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What was Satan doing in heaven? Remember last week? He was accusing. Who will bring any charge? God said in Revelation chapter 12, no more. There are no more voices of accusation in heaven. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The tribulation saints in Revelation 13 will be on the run no doubt experiencing many of these things. That they will hold their faith in a wicked day all the way to the end. Paul says, as it is written, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan, do your worst. Take politics, take authorities, take powers, and bring them on. We have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Father in heaven, we need the endurance and faith of these saints. We need to be men and women of courage in an evil day. We need to remember your goodness toward us in Jesus Christ. We need to remember that though the world feels against us, that we have certainty, we have confidence that we are justified that our lives and our identity and our futures and our hopes rest secure in your hands. May we not trade security here for security there. May we be men and women of hope and of courage in a wicked and evil time. Bless us in Christ's name. Amen.